Thank you for taking the time to listen to the sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this, you are challenged by the Word of God, you are built up in love, and that you are drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you, this is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be present in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you do live in the North Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to join us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings. Our desire is that God would use this to encourage you with the hope we have in Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're continuing in our series, That's a Good Word, Solid Advice for Life in an Unstable word World. And today's title, the title of today's message is, That's a Good Word About Injustice. That's a Good Word About Injustice. So we, we've just heard the passage read. It's quite the passage we're in for this Good Friday. But we trust that the Lord has a word for us, that the Spirit will speak to us to encourage our hearts, to, to point our minds and our hearts and our eyes to Jesus Christ. See, there's a number of things in our world that are almost next to impossible to ignore. Uh, One, for example, is the the cravings of a pregnant woman. Uh, It's very hard to ignore that. And brothers, I encourage you not to ignore those things. Uh, If you're like me and you love books, it's very hard to ignore a book sale. Sometimes I just buy them because they're on sale. You don't, you don't even look at the title. You don't look at who's written it. It's on sale, so you put it in the cart. You buy it. It's hard to ignore it. The other thing is if, if you're about to head out on a long trip, it's ill-advised to ignore the feeling of going to the washroom. Right? You, don't want to, you don't want to ignore that. And just like we can't ignore those things, The Lord will not, cannot, and will never ignore injustice. And see, that's the the big takeaway of the message today. Be comforted and be warned, because injustice is never ignored by the Lord. It's never ignored by the Lord. And see, there's two things I want us to take away from the message, two aims from the message, and the first, it's right there in our big takeaway, be comforted. For some of us, we need that word of hope, word of comfort for those who are enduring patiently under injustice, that the Lord does not ignore it. Be comforted, it's a word of hope, but also, it's a word of warning. Be warned to those who are committing injustice, You need to hear this as well, that the Lord will never ignore injustice. And to some of us, we need to hear both those things. We're enduring injustice, and we're committing injustice. And so the Lord wants us to hear these things, to receive it, to repent if we need to, and to take heart, because the Lord will not ignore injustice. And so as we look to his word, as we look to the passage that we're in, James chapter 5, Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. We trust that you want to speak to us, and so we pray that you'd make our hearts receptive, that the things that are unclear, that your spirit would illuminate, 
that you'd help us to receive, that you'd cause these things to to take deep root and bear fruit in our lives. Help me, help us as we listen, as we receive, as you speak to us through your word. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So James chapter five, verses one to six is is the passage that we're in and I want you to turn your attention to, to verse one. James says this, come now you rich. See James has turned his attention away from the arrogant merchants and has turned his attention now to the unbelieving rich. And he's calling them out for essentially the same thing that they're living their lives and conducting themselves, the things that they do, the things that they say, proving that, that James chapter one, verse 18, hasn't happened in their lives. And to remind us, here's what James has said earlier on in his letter, what should be true of believers. He says this, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. See, James is saying these unbelieving rich, and we're gonna look into this passage, the unbelieving rich are living in a way that shows that this isn't true of them. But he wants it to be true. He's not, he's not saying these things as just to cause shock value, but as a faithful preacher, he, he wants them to come to this reality. Because look at what he says next. Verse one, come now you rich, weep and howl. He's, he's using Old Testament prophetic language to, to call them to repentance. See, our brother Jermaine a couple weeks ago led us through the passage where James is actually referring to in, in chapter four. He says this in chapter four, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. See, James is is not only calling them out, but he wants them to come to a place of repentance. See, James is after their repentance because he desires their exaltation. See, humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so to the unbeliever, before we even go any further, you need to know that every time we open God's word, it's another opportunity that the Lord is giving you to humble yourself, to turn from your sins, to repent, and to trust in him. See, the the preacher that is trying to faithfully exposit the word of God isn't trying to manipulate you with the warnings that you see in scripture but he desires that you would repent, that you would humble yourselves, that you would come and then receive the blessing that James says is available, exaltation, the blessing that you can receive. And so to the Christian, our constant posture before the Lord should be that of humility, that we should be ready at every time to repent as the Lord reveals our sin to us, because that's actually a kindness of God. Imagine if he left us unaware of the things that we were committing that were offensive to him. 
But in his kindness, he actually reveals those things to us, opens our eyes so that we might live, that we might repent and then pursue a life of holiness. It's God's kindness that he reveals our sin to us that we might repent. But James goes on. What happens if they don't repent? Look at, look at verse one again. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. Why? For the miseries that are coming upon you. See, James has, has said a lot of blunt things up until now, but this almost takes the cake. He, he's, he's trying to shock them into the reality that judgment is coming. And see, that's the, the first point of our message. The sin of oppression will be judged by the Lord. The sin of oppression will be judged by the Lord. See, James isn't condemning all rich people when he says this. See, we need to read our Bible in context, and every time uh, someone is up here preaching, the, the goal is to help us read our Bibles well. And so James, earlier in chapters one and two, has already addressed the rich, and he's called them brothers and sisters. So he's not condemning all the rich. See, the Bible gives us examples over and over again of righteous people who were in fact wealthy. See, they give us the examples of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Joseph, of Job, David, Solomon, and then if you go to the New Testament, you have the host of women who single-handedly by themselves funded the early church. See, God doesn't condemn the possession of wealth, but he expects us to use the wealth and the possessions that we have in a way that honors him and loves other people. See, that's what Paul says when he addresses Timothy. He says this, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So they're supposed to have a certain mindset, but they're also supposed to do something. They're, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, God doesn't condemn the possession of wealth, but what James is showing us here is that God condemns those unrighteous, unbelieving rich for misusing their wealth and for gaining it in an improper and unrighteous and wicked way. Look at verse two. Your riches have rotten, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. James wants us to see that the possessions that the rich have are only temporary. They don't last forever. Look at the, the words that he's used to describe them. They're rotten. They're moth-eaten, they're corroded. And so what does that mean for us? Well, it's a word to us to never place our trust and our hope in our possessions or in wealth. And we need to hear this because this temptation to trust in riches, the temptation to trust in our possessions isn't just a temptation that belongs to the rich and the wealthy. See, Solomon, when he's writing, writing the Proverbs, he points this out. 
Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Why? Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. See, for the rich, wealth and possessions tempt you to forget about God. Now, isn't that the condition overall in the West? The, the, the natural level of affluence has caused us as a culture to forget about God. But then Solomon goes on to say that the temptation then of wealth and riches for the poor caused them to lay their hope and trust in riches and do anything that they can to possess it. And so James wants us to see that, that the things that we often hope in, wealth and possessions, are, are fading. They're quickly fleeting. They're actually part of the world that God says is quickly passing away. James not only wants us to see how quickly possessions are passing away, but he wants to show us that we actually do injustice by being bad stewards when we hoard our possessions. See, just like when you walk into the garage of someone who's been hoarding newspapers for years, it serves absolutely no purpose other than collecting dust and rotting away. See, that's what James says these rich and wealthy, the unbelieving rich and wealthy have done. They're not using those possessions, they're just simply collecting and putting it in a storehouse so that they can walk in, look at it, and breathe out a sigh of relief. And so the rich have stored up these possessions for so long that James is saying that they're starting to decay. They're starting to be eaten by moths. They're corroding away. See, Jesus models for us something completely different than this. He gives up his, his status and his riches, and in humility, he takes on servanthood and then sacrifices himself for his people so that we can participate in the storehouses of God's blessing for us. Whereas these wealthy and rich hoard their possessions, Jesus dies in our place so that we can enjoy the blessings, as, as Paul says, the every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. See, listen to what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. He says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. So unlike Jesus, who gave up his status so that we might enjoy every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, the, the unrighteous and unbelieving rich have hoarded their wealth. This isn't what God has intended for us to do with our possessions. See, John Calvin, he gives us a great definition of what these possessions, what our wealth is to be used for. He says this, God has not appointed gold for rust, nor garments for moths, but on the contrary, he has designed them as aids and helps for human life. See, God blesses us with possessions, with wealth, so that we can be a blessing to others. Now, I want to make it clear what, what James isn't saying in all of this. 
James isn't saying that it's wrong to save up for an upcoming purchase. James isn't saying that it's wrong to invest wisely in your own business or in your home. He's not saying that it's wrong to save up for your retirement. He's not saying that it's wrong to save up for your children or for future generations that you might leave a legacy. He's not saying that it's wrong to work hard to make extra money to pay off debt. You see, when we do all of these things, we're actually doing the opposite of hoarding. We're being good stewards. We're, we're striving so that we can bless others. We're striving so that we can care for other people. We're trying to make sure that we don't become a burden on other people. See, we, when we do these things, we're actually being good stewards of God's time and his resources. And he blesses those things. But the audience that James is speaking to, they haven't done any of these things. They're just collecting and hoarding their riches. See, when we use wealth selfishly, we're actually not being good stewards of what actually belongs to God. See, we need to remember all that we have has been given to us by God. We're simply being stewards of it. But when we hoard it, when we keep it selfishly, that's being a bad steward. It's like the, the parable of the talents. The, the master is coming back to make sure we've, we've stewarded all the things that he's given to us wisely for the good of others and for his honor. But if he comes back and he finds out that we, we haven't, remember our big takeaway. Be comforted, be warned. Injustice is never ignored by the Lord. Bad stewardship is an injustice to what has been entrusted to us by the Lord. And it will never go ignored by him. Look at what, what James says happens. Look at verse three again. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. See, God sees their hoarding and actually uses it as evidence on the day of judgment. See, that's a warning for us. There's so many things that we think that it's wise to pursue, but then on the day of judgment, God's gonna expose it for the foolishness that it was. Are we laying our treasures where they should be? And then James says, like throwing gas onto a fire, the wealth that we've hoarded actually serves to, to increase our judgment. Look at verse three again, the end of it. Will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. And then you have laid up treasure in the last days. See, their actions, their hoarding of wealth and possessions actually serve to reveal their hearts. See, Jesus says the same thing on, in the Sermon on the Mount concerning this. And, and he says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Same language that James, is a, James has already used. Where moth and rust destroy. Where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God 
and money. By hoarding their money, James has told them that they've actually exposed to the the watching world who they actually treasure. You cannot love God and money. And so James has exposed them for what they have truly loved. Their bad stewardship of God's money not only incurs judgment from God, but reveals that they don't love God and they don't serve him. Well, James goes on. Look at verse 4. And behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. See, not only have the rich hoarded their wealth, but the way that they've gained their wealth and the way they've maintained their wealth is by defrauding other people. See, God was abundantly clear to his people what they should do with their money when it comes to paying their workers. Here's what Moses said in Deuteronomy. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So James says that this is exactly what has happened in this case. James wants us to see and he wants his readers to see. He wants, to see, he wants the unbelieving rich to understand, and this is our second point, that the cries of the oppressed are heard by the Lord. The cries of the oppressed are heard by the Lord. God has heard their cries. Imagine the comfort that that would bring, the comfort that comes to the oppressed. And so the call to to the oppressed, the call to those who who are enduring injustice then is to wait patiently for the Lord. Wait patiently for the Lord. Because Jesus has said that those who trust in him, those who rely on God, the meek, will inherit the earth. There's gonna come a day when those who are oppressed and needy and vulnerable who trust in the Lord will find that one day they lack nothing because Jesus has given them everything, that Jesus will cause them to inherit the earth. This is incredible comfort to the oppressed. But imagine how terrifying it would be to the one who is actually doing the defrauding. Look at the the term that James uses when he refers to the Lord. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James is telling us that the, the one to whom the cries of the oppressed have reached is the one who at his disposal is the host of heaven's armies. See, this is the same God who in Psalm chapter two looks down on the derision of the people, the conflict, and laughs because they simply bring water guns to a real fight. This is the one who vindicates and acts vengeance on those who are oppressed, those who act injustice on his people. And so the question that might be coming to our minds at this point 
is why does it seem, if, if the cries of, of the oppressed do truly reach the ears of the Lord, why is it that it sometimes looks like the vindication and the vengeance of God seems to be delayed? I mean, it's, it's, you simply have to look around. You won't have to look far until you see injustice, until you see oppression, until you see violence. You, you hear cries all the time. Now, why is it that it seems to be delayed? Well, the apostle Peter gives us an answer to consider. He says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. He's not delaying his vengeance. He's not delaying the vindication of the cries of the oppressed. He is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That all should reach repentance. See, God is long-suffering, and all of us who are believers here in this room are testimonies to that. How long was the gospel preached at your hearts until it was worn down and, and it was warmed to the reception of, of the gospel? God is long-suffering and he does the same with, with those whom Christ has died for. God is working to bring about the repentance of all that Christ has died for. In the middle of our circumstances, we need to remember that God has the big picture in mind. See, last week, Pastor Marvin led us through the, the grand plan of redemption. See, God has a bigger plan at hand. Oftentimes, our eyes are so narrow in our perspective that we only consider our situation. But God is working out a grand plan of redemption where all things will be consummated and one day every tear will be wiped away. There will be no sorrow but endless joy in the presence of the Father. And so we wait patiently because God is working. And so how do we pray then? We don't pray just simply for deliverance from our own situation and our circumstances. But perhaps the Lord is, is urging us to, to begin to pray for, for those who are causing violence. Rather than simply call for justice, maybe we are called to pray for the souls and the hearts of those who, who are committing those things. The Lord has worked in us, so why can't he work in them? So the Holy Spirit can work in them, and so we, we trust and we pray that God would bring about salvation in them. See, don't mistake, every work of salvation is a miraculous work of God. Amen. Paul says that when we, when we trust in him, it's, it's like God said, let there be light. It's the massive work of creation. God is working a new thing in us, and so he can do that in those who are oppressing, those who are committing injustice. And so we don't just pray for deliverance, but we pray for the salvation of the lost. So he changes how we pray. But look at what James says then about the unrighteous rich. Look at verse five. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. 
You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. James is saying like, like the turkey who keeps eating and gorging themselves, not knowing that Christmas and Thanksgiving are around the corner. He's saying the rich are just heaping up treasures around themselves, not knowing that the day of judgment is at hand. <laughs> They're saying, James is saying that they've stacked up their riches and their wealth up so high that they can't see beyond it. That judgment is at hand. And so James then finishes by leveling one last charge on them. Look at verse six. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. See, James calls this oppressed person the righteous person because what he wants to do is to contrast the two groups. The, the, the ones who are oppressing him are unrighteous They've gained their wealth unrighteously, they're using it unrighteously, and then they're oppressing the righteous person. And so the unrighteous rich, they've used their positions of power to take away the rights of the poor and their ability to make a living. And they've rendered them essentially condemned to death. They've used their positions of power to rob these, the righteous person of even their ability to, to buy food. See, the, the verse in Deuteronomy, Moses said that you should pay them at the end of the day because they need to eat today. But the wealthy have withheld those things and essentially condemned people to death. And, and look at what the righteous person does. Look at his response, the end of verse six. He does not resist you. He does not resist you. See, the righteous man doesn't resist. One, because the righteous person, the righteous, and James uses this to talk about the saints, the righteous don't resist because they entrust themselves to the faithful creator. We don't take things into our own hands. But more so, James is trying to get across, they don't resist them because they can't. The power dynamics are so vast that they're powerless and helpless. They can't resist the unrighteous rich. See, there's the potential for this kind of injustice in all kinds of relationships where power can be used sinfully. And so we need to be aware that the relationship of a, a parent and a child, the husband and a wife, the employer and his workers, the teacher and their students, the pastor and his congregation, power can either be wielded sinfully or out of a place of love for the good of others. See, God doesn't condemn a disparity in power. God doesn't condemn people for having more power than, than others. But what he does require is that those with more power act on behalf for the benefit and the good of the vulnerable and the helpless. And God himself is the example of that. God is power incarnate. But what does he do? He serves us. 
See, we were like that, that man in verse six who couldn't resist because the strong man Satan had us captive. We were helpless, we were vulnerable, we were slaves to sin. But the stronger man, Jesus, comes because he doesn't ignore injustice and he loves us. And so the stronger man, Jesus, comes and binds Satan and plunders his house. As Paul says in Ephesians, he leads a host of captives. Jesus, the stronger man, has bound the strong man, plundered his house, and we are evidence of that. God has used power for the good and the love of the weak and the vulnerable. Where Satan brought death and captivity, Jesus brings life and freedom. And so, brothers and sisters, this should give us great compassion for the unbelieving. Because they're lost, they're bound, they're they're captive, they're blind. And so we pray and we ask that God would work in their hearts to to remove scales from their eyes that they might behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we don't hold things against the unbelieving. Instead, we we pray, we, we rely on the Holy Spirit asking God to deliver them just as he has delivered us. Because in fact, the unbeliever is in that same position as the man in verse six. He's being oppressed, he's, he can't resist. So we pray for the stronger man, Jesus, to come and release them. So James has, has told us in this passage that the unrighteous rich have seen the helplessness and vulnerability of the poor and have taken advantage of them. Brothers and sisters, the same thing has happened to Jesus. See, those in power feeling threatened by Jesus go and arrest him and put him on trial. And Jesus, like the righteous man in verse six, doesn't resist them. Jesus doesn't resist arrest. He doesn't resist the trials. He doesn't resist the false accusations. He doesn't resist death on a cross. But unlike the righteous person in verse six, he doesn't resist, not because he is weak, but because he is ultimate power. And he exercises his power to serve others and to fulfill his father's will. Look at what John says in John chapter 10. This is Jesus, he's saying, no one takes it, meaning my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. See, unlike the righteous man in verse six, Jesus wasn't resisting because he was weak, but he, because he was powerful. And so Jesus willingly gives up his life and takes up the cross, carries it, and then dies upon it. And remember, in in verse four, James tells us that the cries of the oppressed 
have reached the ears of the Lord. And so in the same way, the cries of Jesus have reached the ears of the Father. Here's, here's, how, here's the cries of Jesus on that Good Friday that have reached the ears of the Father. The cries of, of Jesus, his, his, his lips, he cries out, Father, forgive them. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Look at the, the grace and the mercy that Jesus has offered. In the moment of the greatest injustice and oppression of, of all of history, the cries that reach the ears of the Lord of hosts is, Father, forgive them. And so to the unbeliever, this is a, is a moment and an opportunity to humble yourself because if you do, there's comfort available. There's forgiveness available. But that's not all he says. He says, it is finished. That the price has been paid. That there's no outstanding balance left. That Jesus, by his work, has redeemed successfully and ultimately the people that he has died for. And so to the believer, this should be a word of comfort to you. That there's no longer any striving left to do because Jesus has done it all. And so we rest in his finished work. So you might be enduring injustice and oppression right now, and, and you should pursue any, all the means available to you to, to relieve yourself from it without sinning. But because the world is broken, the, the systems of the world are flawed, we have to rest in those times that we can't see oppression and injustice resolved here. We, we rest in the finished work of Christ because it's finished now and Jesus, remember the plan of redemption. He's coming back to consummate his kingdom. See, that's what James encourages his believers with in the very next verse in the passage that we're gonna be listening to and sitting under this Easter. James says this, James chapter five, verse seven. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So he cries out, it is finished, a word of comfort to us. But then his blood cries out as well. The cry of his blood, Hebrews 12, verse 24. His blood cries out saying that, that he has sanctified and perfected those whom he had died for. There's, his, his blood was enough. And so the cries of Jesus reach the ears of the Father and he, he listens and he opens the door of salvation to all of us. That's why it's called Good Friday. Because it is finished. He's asked for forgiveness. His blood cries out on our behalf. So we, we go back to the, the big takeaway. Be comforted. Be warned. Injustice is never ignored by the Lord. See, the murder of Jesus was the greatest act of injustice and oppression. 
but his cries have reached the ears of his father. So we take comfort in that. See, James warns this whole passage. He warns the unbelieving rich because his heart is for their repentance and the grace that is available to them. And that same grace is available to all of us today. The call is to to trust in him, to wait patiently for him, knowing that he cares for us. Be comforted, be warned, because the reality is that injustice is never ignored by the Lord. He has dealt with it at the cross, and he will deal with it ultimately at his return, and so we rest in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you use all of scripture to build us up and equip us. We trust that your spirit has has spoken to us through your word. We thank you for these reminders that, that we do not trust in ourselves but we wait patiently for the one who hears our cries. Because the one who hears our cries is the one who heard the cries of Jesus. That it is finished. That Father, would you forgive them? And that the cries of his blood, which, which call for our perfection, our holiness, our sanctification. So Father, help us to, to wait patiently upon you, to trust in your finished work, to trust in in what Jesus has said on the cross for us, that you have heard it and that you have opened the doors of salvation for us. So be with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. resources or information about Hope Church, visit hopetorontonorth.com.